This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by Dataminer, providing the fastest, most relevant alerts on emerging risks across the world. Uh, the difference between 100% and 99% is 1%. But we perceive that 1% very different than, for instance, the difference between 20 and 21%. That's still the same 1% mathematically, but uh, in our perception, it's, uh, it's different. Individual Development Program, or IDP as it's called, is basically a social contract, per se, between the employee and the manager in terms of them seeking opportunities to not only get additional training and education and special projects that are need for development. All that and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Johan DeWitt is the Technical Officer of Enterprise Security for Siemens Smart Infrastructure. He holds a master's degree in security science and a PhD research position at Delft Technical University, where he's exploring the characteristics of security risk assessments. Johan is also a member of the ASIS International Information Security Forum and the U.S. State Department's Overseas Security Advisory Council in the Netherlands. Johan DeWitt, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you. Happy to be here. Today's topic, uncovering cognitive biases in decision-making. I would like to first start by predicting that there's a high risk we're going to have a very interesting conversation. Let's see if that turns out to be true. <laughs> All kidding aside, let's talk about so. Yeah, this is a very interesting topic to me. Uh, I've been involved in a lot of decision-making processes over the last 40 years for law enforcement and security. I like to think I got most of them correct, uh, but maybe maybe I didn't. So let's let's evaluate that. Let's start by talking about a definition of risk management. Define that for me. Um, well, risk is usually defined as the uh, the effect of uncertainty on uh, certain objectives. So they actually it, it leaves out two components: so an, an effect or consequence and uncertainty, and that that defines risk. And we try to manage risks by uh, applying some kind of uh, of risk management process, and there are quite a few out there, but Usually, they uh, they consist of, of of subsequent steps of risk identification, or maybe before that, set the scope or the context identification, evaluation, and analysis, evaluation, and then uh, taking controls. So that's actually what risk management is about. Johan, talk to me about the difference between cognitive bias and using logical reasoning. One plus one equals two, therefore, this is my decision. Oh, it's a hard question. Um, well, the, the difference, a, a bias is a, a systematic deviation from a norm. Uh, that's, that's a kind of a definition there. Uh, if you assume that in decision-making, the norm would be to have the uh, most optimized outcome, uh, then uh, a, a bias would uh, would predict that you would deviate from the most uh, optimal outcome of your decision. Um, and so it it's a kind of uh, a bias uh, is a kind of opposed to sometimes some schoolers believe that it's it's opposed to rational decision making. So 
in if you would make a rational decision then you would make the decision or choose the option with the highest outcome uh, and uh, a bias would uh, would influence that in in a way that you do not choose uh, the, the option with the most optimal outcome so that's actually what a bias does Johan, talk to me about your study. Uh, that was a great definition, by the way. I really understood what you were saying, uh, strangely enough, with my small security guy TV brain. Uh, tell me what, the, what, your, uh, what your study found in regards to this. Well, I, I started off, I, f I first did a master study. And during my, my master research, um, I, uh, I had the assumption that security professionals uh, had some kind of notion about risk. So... Um, let's say the basic notion about risk is that you you have a certain risk to start with um then you you have your your risk management process and you come to the conclusion well this is something i cannot accept so i need to take some kind of measures or controls or put them in place um, then you would select controls and the assumption is that you know what the controls would do so they usually would reduce your risk and then after implementing the controls, then you have less risk than you started with. And hopefully that risk that's left over is acceptable to you. If it's not, then you add another control and then you come into the layers of defense. That's usually what we do. My assumption was that security professionals uh, use this process. And my assumption was actually wrong when I studied it in, in, in real life. I came to the conclusion uh, during my master's studies that security professionals didn't exactly know the size or the weight of the risk to start with. They do not really know what the controls, how the controls would affect the risk. They probably work, but they don't know the size of the effect and they don't measure the risks afterwards. So actually, uh, that made me wonder how do these security professionals uh, implement controls? And we, for, I work for Siemens and we are a, a security systems integrator. So we sell uh, billions of euros of security systems. And it made me wonder why these customers buy it. Of course, I'm happy that they do, but it makes me wonder why would you buy, an, for instance, an access control system? That was the topic of my, uh, my master study. Why would a security manager of a corporation buy an access control system? And as I said, I assumed that it was for risk reduction. But actually, when I started questioning them, and I did uh, in-depth uh, interviews uh, with quite a few of them, uh, they didn't really know. They didn't really know the effect of the access control system. So that made me puzzled. So if, if they do not follow this risk management process or at least they follow the risk management process but they don't know the size of the risk or the effect of the controls so how on earth do they uh, really decide then and that actually is the the topic of uh, of my research so after my masters after i finished my masters it kept me puzzled so i just went on uh, into a phd program do you have any statistics for me in your findings people love to hear statistics what can you tell us about what percentage of security professionals were able to make decisions? Uh, in, in general, it, it depends a bit. I, I, I checked uh, uh, quite a few different biases. Um, and in the article in security management, we mentioned a few. But uh, in general, 
the, the outcome is that security professionals are just as bad or just as good, depending on how you look at it, as, as lay people. So they weren't any better than lay people in uh, avoiding biases. And that means if you, if you want to know numbers, uh, that three quarters, so 75% of, uh, of the people follow biases. So only 25% doesn't. Uh, and so that's a, that's a significant high number of people that, uh, that are driven in, uh, by biases. Let's talk about things we need to be cognitive of. What are some of the effects that we're implementing here in our brains that we're really not aware of? Maybe you can speak to, to, to that for us. Um, yeah, there, there are uh, quite a few, to be honest. Um, one that fascinated me is uh, that uh, the uh, probability distortion, is it called, or the uh, value function, um, and what that says is that uh, uh, 1% difference. So we would say that 1% is 1% from a, a mathematical standpoint. It's the same 1%. But actually it isn't. We, uh, we perceive 1%. Uh, we can perceive 1% as different from another 1%. Just to give you an example, uh, the difference between 100% and 99% is 1%. But we perceive that 1% very different than, for instance, the difference between 20 and 21%. That's still the same 1% mathematically, but uh, in our perception, it's, uh, it's different. And this 1% from 100 to 99% is actually, we, we perceive that uh, not as 1%, but as 5.5%. And that's something that I wasn't aware of. It was known already in the uh, uh, psychological domain. Um, I, myself, I wasn't aware, but it explains a little bit uh, how uh, we perceive, let's say, uh, risks with a, a very small likelihood, which of, is often the case in a, in a security risk. Um, they ha often have small likelihoods, and we perceive them as much bigger than they actually are. So this probability distortion was something that uh, that struck me, just as an example, that uh, we, at least that's that, that those are my words, but we cannot really trust our judgment on, uh, on uh, probabilities uh, because our perception is different. That could also mean that the perception, my perception of 1% can might be a little bit different than yours. So an average is 1% from 100 to 99 is 5.5, but it might differ per individual. So that was one finding that, uh, that really uh, struck me. Tell me some, maybe you have some, uh, some examples of how this uh, might work, uh, real-world examples of, of, of decision-making that people would make that we wouldn't expect an outcome for. Well, actually, the uh, the case we used in the in the research was a case of a, a pharmaceutical uh, company organization. Uh, so you are imagine yourself being the, uh, the security manager, security director of a, a pharmaceutical company. Um, what do you think more likely? And I, uh, it was something like the short version was uh, you uh, you have a, a cyber attack. Uh, or the second answer was you are under a cyber attack by a Chinese hacker group uh, focusing on the intellectual property of COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, 
so that that was the case study that that we applied and the second one was again uh, 75 percent of the security professionals thought the second one was more likely than the first one um, and it has to do actually has to do with the narrative whether you think the the narrative suits what you already know what you experienced and if it does then you almost automatically think it's uh, it's more likely uh, than the short version with in logical reasoning would lead you to the short answer would be more uh, would be, should be more likely because the second one is a conjunction of the first one but that actually is the case so it's about the narrative and whether you recognize the narrative or think the narrative is logical or not and if you think it's logical then it's more likely uh, it, it, it's a, a matter of of choices and if you you make a predictive judgment on a, on a risk, but not only on one risk, or maybe you do it on, on 10 or 20 or 50 or whatever, how many risks you, you try to evaluate. And then you have your resources, your budget, and, and you need to allocate that uh, spread over these 10, 20, 50 different risks. Whether do I invest in a firewall or security guard? Uh, and those kind of decisions uh, is, is something that security professionals do on a, on a daily basis. Where do I in, put my investments? Where do I allocate my resources? And to, to be able to do that properly, you need to have, a, 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 at least in my opinion, a very good understanding of the different likelihoods uh, of, of the risks. And the example that we, we just talked about was about uh, uh, different no notion of likelihood depending on the the the, your, the the number of details that you have on this uh, particular uh, risk so i think the answer is really there in, do i do the right thing yeah let's break this down to some real world uh solutions tell me how security practitioners can get this right how they can do better at this what are some things or steps they can take to help improve their decision making process Oh, that's an excellent question. Thank you. Um, it's it's actually quite hard, and it depends a bit on the on the concept of of decision making. So um, there are, of course, a, a few simple things. Uh, try to to gather a group, uh, and uh, it, it it sounds very popular, but uh, diversity is uh, is something people that might think differently than you do. Uh, and make it a kind of group decision. So you have different perspectives on, on the same uh, risk. So that's that's one thing. Uh, second thing is um, to slow down. Um, don't make very intuitive decisions because intuitive decisions are the ones that are biased most. So if you start by uh, logical reasoning and for some bigger decisions, you need to do that anyway, but for the smaller ones, we tend to uh, to do them uh, based on our, our gut feeling, our uh, intuition, and uh, that's where we make mistakes. Or that that's where the biases kicks in. So um, if if you would slow down, uh, take a moment uh, to think about it, or maybe take an extra day to think about it, uh, that that might help. You might want to force yourself to uh, to come up with different options. So if you have two options to choose from, maybe you, you need to force yourself to come up with more different options. 
and just by thinking about different options that might open other perspectives as well. So these uh, these are some basic simple things to uh, uh, yeah in in, in practice uh, slow down your decision making and make it more deliberate uh, as. Uh, uh, the famous schooler uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, wrote in, in his famous book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. If you haven't read it, uh, please do so, because it's it's a, a very important book. He won the Nobel Prize uh, for it. Uh, and he defines two systems thinking. So system one is, is very fast, doesn't cost you much, much energy, it's very intuitive. And system two is very deliberate, it's logical reasoning. It takes time and it takes effort. It takes brain effort. So if we have the choice as humans, we try to use as much system one thinking as possible because it's easy and fast and it's almost unconscious. Uh, and uh, we try to avoid this logical reasoning because it's cumbersome and it takes effort. And what you would like to do to avoid your biases, the biases are mainly in system one. You want to move to system two and other people can help you with that as well. So those are some basic, basic, simple things to improve your decision making. Mr. Johan DeWitt, we're speaking about uncovering cognitive biases in security decision making. At the beginning of the show, as I predicted, there was a high risk and probability this would be a good show, and indeed it was. Mr. Johan, thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Well, yeah, th thank you very much. And uh, we can talk for hours like this, and I, I really like it. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to uh, to tell something about my research. And uh, there's lots more to talk about. So uh, I come back anytime. Thank you. Dataminer Plus provides the fastest, most relevant alerts on emerging risks across the world. Dataminer's AI platform cross-correlates more than 250,000 public data sources, including first-hand accounts, audio transmissions, and the deep and dark web to provide comprehensive real-time event detection. Visualize real-time information at the level and specificity needed to quickly contextualize, understand, and respond to high-impact events as they unfold with Dataminer Plus's new advanced geo-visualization capabilities. Learn more and book a demo for yourself at dataminer.com, D-A-T-A-M-I-N-R.com. Robert Baggett, CPP, PCI, PSP, JD, MPA, is the special agent in charge for the U.S. Department of Agriculture Office of Inspector General's Investigation Liaison and Special Operations Division. Robert previously served as the founding chair of the ASIS Professional Development Committee and past chair of the Investigations Committee and Academic and Training Programs Council. Mr. Robert Baggett, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Uh, thank you for having me, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be here. Good topic today, leveraging DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion to empower organizational competitive advantage. There's a lot of places we can go with this discussion, but let me, let's me let set the stage for a, let's say, a corporate security department. I'll use my example of Disney. Uh, I had a large department, uh, about 300 guards, and we had females in management positions, uh, peoples of, uh, of color in different management positions, a very diverse rainbow-looking group of security professionals, no doubt about that. And that's because Disney would pick you to be the best. It really was focused on being the best people, and we attracted people from all over the place. Now, if you look at my department, you would say, we have DE&I. Let's go to the next level and explain to me how just because it looks like DE&I, 
how it might not be DEI? Because I think a lot of people might think I've achieved my goal by having this really diverse security force. That's definitely a great way of thinking with that, Chuck. It's especially, yeah, definitely from an outside perspective, it looks like all the boxes are checked. But in reality, the security organization also needs to be able to leverage the knowledge, skills, and abilities that their employees can bring to the table, especially as it relates to DNI items of note. First of all, it's important that security leaders and managers understand and try to make additional inroads to comprehend the various benefits that foster diversity, equity, inclusion within their professional development, but also the professional development of their employees in the organization. What often happens at times is sometimes uh, their voices are heard. You know, they're, they're not provided a equal value, you could say, when the, and they may be uh, a little bit dismissive in nature in terms of when they, when certain people within the team raise concerns or ideas that could ultimately cultivate and lead change. They, not be, they may not uh, be absolutely, honestly, effective communi effectively communicated and heard. So it's one of the things that I've found, you know, especially during my career for State Department as a U.S. diplomat working overseas, is oftentimes we work not only with American citizens who are diplomats as uh, embassies and consulates, but we also work with interagency partners, you know, host country officials, and our locally employed staff of the embassies and consulates who are citizens of that country that we're assigned. So very important that security managers and leaders and all leaders in professional organizations kind of strive and take a little bit more notice in terms of what value can be brought to the table because everybody, especially from a different background from our own, can bring something new to the table. It could be a different perspective where they where we're able to address and analyze issues from various frames of references. And that's kind of the cornerstone of critical thinking. Because especially as we all try to become better strategic leaders in our organization, it's important to analyze and assess an issue from various frames of reference. So that way we can make an evidence-based decision and use our best judgment to find a path forward to coming up and developing and implementing a solution to address that challenge that we particularly face. Well, I'm all for critical thinking. Uh, it, it, it is the core of proper decision-making, no doubt. Here's a fine line that I always struggle with. Security is, and police work, right? Let's use those two organizations. I'm gonna say they're not really paramilitary, but there's a real structure to it, isn't there? There's the, the head of security, there's maybe captains, lieutenants, you know, that kind of thing, a lot of security forces. And then there's the policy, right? So the policy is kind of the boss and the policy says, here's how the company's gonna run security and do things. How do we know that when we engage people for ideas, and we don't accept their ideas, how do we know that's just not because it doesn't fit the corporate policy? In other words, I, as a leader, have to follow certain parameters, and that doesn't mean that Robert doesn't have a great idea, and it's a fabulous idea, and I want to include it. You know, as a leader, I just can't based on corporate policy. I could see that being interpreted incorrectly, that you were included, but it wasn't you, it was the idea. And, you know, not everybody's idea is always accepted. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what boils down to it is with any, you know, with or without that DEI mindset that, you know, we're trying to employ these days, especially in light of the current environmental climate that we're 
facing in the 21st century, especially as we're coming out of a pandemic. You know, I think all employees need to have a solid understanding of the mission and vision statements of our organization, as well as the strategic objectives that the organization is trying to obtain or achieve. And with that being said, if they can link those themes and concepts around the idea of a solution that they are trying to pitch and bring forth to our management, I think that really helps to come full circle in terms of finding that way forward and getting that proposal, you know, a second look or being truly considered and valued in order to facilitate and lead organizational change. Well, there's an old, uh, an old French saying, uh, when the guillotines were falling back in the day, uh, one of the politicians looked and said, uh, well, I'm their leader, so I really should follow them, right? You should follow the people that you lead. And that really, it sounds a little funny, but really is the best way to lead, to be inclusive that way. Give me an idea on how merit plays a role in this, because a lot of structures have a thing where maybe you take a test to promote, uh, maybe you have an oral interview to promote. Uh, sometimes those are blind. In other words, we don't know who's writing the test or doing. Sometimes they're oral interviews and stuff. Uh, my idea would be just to let everybody participate and let you find your own level of skills. And then, you know, you become self-aware of where you need to go to improve your skills to move up instead of just selecting your favorite, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. I think definitely from an objective viewpoint, especially when there's a lot of competition to not only obtain a job, but once you obtain that job to move up the corporate ladder per se, I really feel that the use of individual development plans really helps set the stage towards career advancement. And I know that uh, I talked a little bit about this in my October 2018 article in terms of professional development with Security Management Magazine, but the Individual Development Program, or IDP as it's called, is basically a social contract, per se, between the employee and the manager in terms of them seeking opportunities to not only get additional training and education and special projects underneath their belt, but it also provides a roadmap in terms of where do I see myself in the next one to three years, in the next five to ten years in terms of what I want to pursue and what goals I want to achieve. And I think with that being said, if someone ends up taking stock in what their individual development plan is and they make a good faith effort to try to follow that in conjunction with getting support from their supervisor, you know, additional opportunities will manifest themselves. You know, I definitely understand that sometimes, you know, organizational budgets may be limited from fiscal year to fiscal year, and they may not be able to get all the education and training opportunities that you know, they originally requested. But with that being said, there's other avenues that can be pursued that are low cost. You know, a lot of organizations are going towards mentoring programs within their organizations or even providing free coaching services to their employees. And I think those particular concepts are particularly keen to develop one's critical strategic thinking, especially as you pursue additional career opportunities and become a more seasoned public official or you know, security management professional, your your metal is going to be tested. You're going to have to deal with more complex issues and problems. And I think having a solid mentor and a sound leadership coach are good ways to help an employee and that manager navigate that process. Well, it's probably one of the most important things, if not the most important mentoring. And I always felt that uh, not only do we mentor down, but if you're a smart leader, 
you allow mentoring up. In other words, right? I'm a, I'm a gray haired guy, but doing this 40 years, I could sure learn a few tricks from the young people coming up because they have a different perspective on technology. Uh, for example, when I was a police officer, you went into security from there. Now people are coming into security as a first career out of academia. And that's really a great place to start. And it's kind of a new thing in our profession, isn't it? Coming in with a degree in security. Well, absolutely. And not only that, but it shows the evolution of the, the security management profession as a whole. You know, and, and things are definitely changing, especially when we're having to leverage additional technologies to become more efficient and address key critical issues. And I really think if you have a good role, not only as a leadership coach or as a mentor, but relationship is reciprocal in nature. You know, everybody's going to be able to provide added value to each other to help everybody in that relationship grow, especially if there's effective communication involved and it's an opportunity for everybody to learn. And it kind of goes back to, absolutely check it, definitely goes back to becoming a better servant leader as well, making sure that our employees and personnel are providing the resources that they need to succeed. And that definitely bodes well for enhancing organizational performance. So I'm glad I'm speaking to you as an expert on this because I used to do something back in the day and I'm talking, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago when we did employee evaluations, guess what? Of the probably 3000 employees I had over the many years I, I had a career, I never wrote one single employee evaluation. But what I did do is I had people write their own evaluations. Talk about inclusion, mm -hmm. right? They get to rate themselves and I would read them all. I would speak to everybody about it and people tended to evaluate themselves less than I would. In other words, they were more humble about it. And I would say, you know what? I don't think you're a three. I think you're a four, right? What do you think about that? Is there any movement towards this area? I think that would really go a long way to empower people when they participate in their own evaluating of, the, of their self-worth for organization. It really makes you stand out that way. Oh, absolutely. And that's something that I've personally seen in my career in the federal service so far. You know, earlier when I was at the State Department, we would have our own employee narrative statement that we would actually have our own section to write for our employee evaluation. Our first line supervisor would have a section and our second line supervisor would have a, uh, have a section for, their, for our evaluations. And you would get three different frames of reference on that employees or my personal performance for that rating period. So I kind of followed it out of my current federal career in my current position to where I allow the employees that I supervise to ultimately provide their snippets and their write-ups. Then, you know, some of them end up basically writing their own more or less and I end up providing feedback and tweaking. Others provide some bullets, you know, and I end up having conversations with them to where we end up crafting a narrative together for their evaluation, building upon those bullets provided. But I think, I think that's a great opportunity not only to pursue self-reflection per se, but also to increase an employee's self-awareness of what their contributions were for the fiscal year and how they truly made inroads in further developing the goals or achieving the goals of the organization. And I think that also goes into helping people also prepare for, you know, updating their resumes and addressing key items in their resumes, because sometimes a lot of people don't touch their resume until they're ready to look for another job or seek that promotion. Exactly. And oftentimes right. it's a it's a mad scramble sometimes, right? Because, oh, this this awesome federal job popped up or this one private sector pop, 
job popped up and I only had a week to get all my ducks in a row. But if you were constantly updating your resume, it'd be a really light lift beyond just tweaking your cover letter for that. Well, and I think it also gives you the opportunity to fully understand your position in the organization, your value in the organization, how much you are included, how much you're empowered. I, I think it really goes a long way. Robert, I'd like to close uh, with you commenting on training. Now, when I mean training, I mean training to DE&I, right, to explain it to people, and also maybe training, I don't describe it, bringing more people into training. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I'm big on training, and sometimes training is a budget constraint. It's not that people don't want to do training. It's just that they can't afford it. But if everybody was trained at the same level, I, I think that would do a lot to bring more people into the fold. They have the same company knowledge across the board. Chuck, I think you raise a great point, and it kind of makes me think, too, initially, you know, we've all heard a phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Because with that being said, and it kind of goes back to professional development also, you know, training is great, and if we apply it to, and you provide it to everybody, that's excellent. We're having everybody have that same baseline level of training. I know back when I started law enforcement 21 years ago, you know, this is one of the items that we had to address each year in the state of Florida was diversity in training. So if, with that being said, they have to be able to apply the training. The personnel have to be able to apply the training to their job. And that, you know, sometimes that's a lifestyle modification, right? You know, there, there has to be a conscious effort to do that. Because, you know, it, it kind of goes back to, you know, lifestyle modifications and though, you know, you take a 40 hour class and something and you, you get your certificate but if you don't lose it or you don't use it, you lose it, right? And I think with that being said, there has to be a uh, continuous and a conscious effort to apply the training that we learn, not only on DEI as a note, but anything that's of a critical nature in the security and law enforcement profession. Because otherwise, if we don't take heed of the concepts that we learn and apply them, then ultimately that training is worthless. That's right. And training eventually can become a cultural shift. It can become a standard. You're no longer training to it. It is the standard. Now we train to a different skill set to apply the standard. So it's a process. I hear you. And uh, there's nobody more difficult to, to train than uh, security law enforcement personnel for all kinds of reasons. So you get your hands full when you start with this stuff. Ms. Robert Baguette, thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Good stuff and uh, good luck to you in your career. Well, thank you, Chuck. Much appreciated. This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by Dataminer, providing the fastest, most relevant alerts on emerging risks across the world.